Osoblevo za presvjetu, prečesto preblagoslovenu, slavno vladečicu našu Bohorodeću i presrodivo Mariju. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. Welcome, everyone, to the final episode of the Pentateuch series with Gideon Lazar. Gideon, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. This has been a wonderful time. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just been fantastic to discuss the Holy Scripture with you. Um, and so today we're getting into the final of the five books of Moses, Deuteronomy. And this is part of our annual Bible Reader, which is the, the Bible Reading Group, is uh, available to patrons of Meaning of Catholic or bizcat you can go to patreon.com slash bizcat b-y-z-c-a-t to access that so we're at um we're in paschal tide now and the entire cycle of paschal tide lent and paschal tide we go through the pentateuch beginning at septuagesima and this is also true to some extent also in the byzantine rite with uh reading genesis and um, so you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, through Passion Tide, um, the Jeremiah Trilogy, and then in Paschal Tide, you go through Deuteronomy, and then also the Book of Jesus, aka Joshua, uh, and then Joshua judges Ruth at the very end, and then the time after Pentecost begins with the Book of First Samuel, aka First Kings, First Kingdoms. And then that goes through so that there's the sequential order of all this going through all the way in the Roman rite, the readings pick up after Pentecost uh, with first Samuel. Um, so we're at this final stage of the Pentateuch, that is, as we continue to go through the Old Testament in this sequential order. So before we get into that, though, uh, there's a special event that we've been promoting, but it is now next week or it's uh, this week, this Saturday, actually, April 22nd. And that is this, the Ecology and the, the Theology of Creation Conference. So Gideon, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, I've been working with a number of other people to put together this conference on the ecological crisis, but approaching it from a specifically Catholic perspective, and specifically through the lens of the theology of creation. Uh, so we have a lot of great speakers for this conference. Uh, we have Pater Edmund Volstein. We have Thomas Stork. We have Jared Goff. We have uh, Father Daniel Dozier, Father Francesco Giordano, and um, Sean Doherty, Jacob Imam. It's going to be a really, really great lineup of speakers. 
It's only $25 to sign up, and you can get 10% off with the discount code MOC for Meaning a Catholic, and also let them know that um, Meaning a Catholic sent you to the conference. It's this Saturday. It's coming up really soon. Uh, it's going to be, I think, just a great time. You know, we've been, it's really great to finally see this come to fruition because we've been planning this for around a year now and we're really getting to see all the final pieces come together and um and if also if you want to sign up but you can't make it live to the conference that's perfectly fine we'll be recording the whole conference and um sending out the recordings but only if you sign up with a ticket so if you want to be able to get the recordings afterwards you have to sign up before the conference opens and what is it about St. Basil that this institute is named after St. Basil in particular? Yeah, he wrote one of the most important works among the church fathers on the theology of creation. He wrote a commentary on the six days of creation where he talks about how all the things in the world, and he follows the course of the six days, but also comments on lots of specific types of animals that aren't mentioned by name in the six days and goes into both how they symbolize God and how they teach us moral lessons. And really the whole goal of the St. Basil Institute is to bring back a discussion of the theology of creation. Because when we talk about creation nowadays, immediately the first thing that comes to mind is how does creation relate to science? And we're saying right, that's an important question, but that's not the most important question. And we're so focused on that, we can't touch on lots of other important issues nowadays. And so our goal is to hopefully bring back an academic discussion of the theology of creation, uh, both in the academy and in the church and for lay people. Yeah, and this this was one of the the most profound um, discussions that we had here was when you were expounding the symbolic meaning of the clean and unclean animals, and how the eating of this animal and not eating of that animal symbolized the Jews and Israel vis-a-vis -vis the Gentile nations. And I was once again um, this came into relief when I was reading the Book of Acts as a part of our Bible reading program. Uh, because of the the epic moment with Cornelius involves a vision where St. Peter sees beasts, he sees the animals, which are these symbols, and then that is the symbolic representation that God uses in the vision to reveal one of the most momentous, the momentous moments in the New Testament, which is the admission of the Gentiles into the people of God. Yeah. So, all that is through the symbols of creation. Yeah. You know, one of the most profound things I ever noticed, this wasn't original to me. I think I got this from uh, Peter Lightheart, who noted that all the heroes in the Old Testament are all shepherds. They're all connected with land animals and sea creatures are always connected with Gentiles. But when Christ comes, he doesn't call shepherds to follow him. He calls fishermen to wow. follow him. The apostles are to go out to the Gentiles. Right? And the only time someone travels over the sea in the Old Testament is Jonah, who's going to a Gentile nation. So even though he's going to Nineveh, which is you only have to travel over land to get to Nineveh, symbolically, he first has to go out to the ocean to get there because you have to travel over sea to get to the Gentiles. And then finally, we have a hero go over the sea when uh, St. Paul has to travel over the Mediterranean Sea to go visit the Gentiles on his various missionary trips. And so the going wow. out to sea into the fish is finally shows the bringing in of the Gentiles. If you really focus in on the symbolism of animals in the scripture, there's so much that's taught there. And there's 
pagan nations at the same time also recognize this, right? You have Aesop's fables, sort of the classic way to teach children. You use the example of animals. So everyone in the ancient world knew you use animals to teach moral lessons, but the scripture shows us here's the correct way to understand these animals. Well, that, that's fantastic because I, uh, yeah, the, there's the, the, the ep, uh, once again, the epic moment of St. Paul at the end of the book of Acts because he goes to Rome, which I think is recapitulated in some sense as well with the apocalypse when you have the, mm -hmm. the beast of the land and then the beast of the sea as well. And they're both making war on Christ and his church. Anyways, we could go on about all this, but I, what I wanted to do here was um, quickly just uh, recaps really quickly about the whole Torah and um, with this. So uh, once again, you can support G both Gideon and myself, go to patreon.com slash bizcat, B-Y-Z-C-A-T. You can go to, you can join the guild at Meaning of Catholic, meaningofcatholic.com slash guild, or I'm sorry, slash register is the URL. Um and become a part of the guild to support this whole apostolate. And then, uh, yeah, sign up for the ecology conference. I will be there. Gideon will be here, there on Saturday. We're actually having a Jacob Imam on Meaning of Catholic on Thursday to talk about new polity stuff. So we'll promote it some more on, on Thursday as well. But um, regarding the whole um, the whole Torah, real quick, um, first I had a comment here. I just want to thank you both for this wonderful series and hope you might consider coming back to tie this off proper with Joshua and judges. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm glad that someone, um, it, it has been helpful to someone. Uh, it's been certainly, uh, a joyful thing for me. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's been great. So, um, so this is an outline that I created when I was studying Scott Hahn's work and what he talks, he emphasizes a great deal is covenants. And this is an overview of the various um, various covenants and priesthood and cultic rites in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. And this is emphasizing um, what the patristic notion of secondary legislation. This is a patristic notion which is going to go right into Deuteronomy as a particular book that's most important. Um, but one of the things we note already with these various covenants. So let me just go through this really quickly. So first we have this, um, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, which as you'll see, each of these includes blood in some way. So there's the animal skins. First of all, there's the firstling on the flock with which Abel offers. And then Noah builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. Noah offers blood. He offers it on an altar, and he also eats animals for the first time. There's the death penalty, which is also blood. Abraham has the covenant of circumcision, which includes blood. And then we have the Passover blood, the Paschal mystery, and the Sabbath is instituted here. Now there, the Sabbath comes in. And then the Sinai covenant, the initial covenant, it can be distinguished from the post-calf covenant. And this is the, something that the patristics... Uh, bring out because they the patrist the church fathers especially the anti Nicene fathers are in uh, so they are made up of Jews and Gentiles baptized Jews and baptized Gentiles who are then disputing with other fellow Jews of the synagogue who are just like the dialogue with trial of the the Jew for example and one of the things I emphasize in these debates with Jews is that the the reason that the Gentiles do not follow the um, the law of Moses per se, as the, as the rabbinic Jews understand it at that time was because they have this thing called the secondary legislation. And what the, the fathers bring out is that 
The secondary legislation is, is what God conceded as a result of the sins of Israel. And so the, the first very significant one is the post-calf Levitical laws, which come after the golden calf happens, which is one in critical thing is that it minimizes the priesthood of the firstborn son. So this is something that Scott Hahn emphasizes. Um, so in the original Sinai covenant with the Ten Commandments, they did offer sacrifice. The firstborn sons offered sacrifices along with the Aaronic priesthood. After the golden calf, this the firstborn son is pretty much negated as a priesthood. And the Aaronic priesthood alone is offering the blood with various Levitical laws. And then we have the second generation arises because we, as we talked last time with numbers, the first generation is cursed. They all die except for Caleb and Joshua. And then the second generation arises, but then they apostatize. They have a similar sort of calf episode at Baal Peor, which then results in the Deuteronomic concessions, which are further additional secondary legislation. So the fathers come along, they say to the Jews who, who do not believe in Christ, they say that what, what Christ is doing is he's restoring the original priesthood of Melchizedek from the father of patriarchal period. He's restoring the covenant with God that God initially had with creation itself when he institutes the Sabbath. This, the Sabbath itself, the word Sabbath means to covenant. And so that so the, so God Christ is removing this secondary legislation, which is a which are these all these concessions. Scott Hahn mentions how Deuteronomy actually is the con, whereas there's there's more concessions for things like um, like total warfare, um, things like slavery, things like divorce are all these concessions that are made in Deuteronomy, which Christ the Lord comes and says, He actually says this very thing. He says this. He says that because your hearts are hardened. Moses allowed you to divorce, for example. So that is one aspect to all of this, this whole Torah, this whole discussion of the law of Moses, which we which we have as interlocutors, rabbinic Jews. Um, so any comments on those concepts, uh, Gideon, before we get further into the text? Yeah, that was, I think, a very good introduction to the background of this, because Something notice with Deuteronomy, right, is it's Moses has been with the Israelites for 40 years. So God gives them a law at Sinai, and Moses has now seen 40 years of them trying to implement this law. And now he is going to give them another law with a lot more details. Something you'll notice is often when you're reading the rules in Exodus or, Levit or Leviticus, you'll be a little bit confused. But if you go to a parallel passage in Deuteronomy, it will often clarify the meaning of it. Is now uh, Moses has, right? We see in the book, uh, beginning of the book of Psalms that um, we have the blessed man who meditates upon the law of God day and night. And we also see at the beginning of the book of Joshua that Joshua meditates upon the law of God day and night. So it's the job of um, a king to meditate upon the law day and night. So Moses has been doing that. He's been meditating upon the law for 40 years, and now he's going to give them an application of that law. And we can think about this in our own lives, right? When we're young, we initially have to learn, and 
that might be sort of our exodus in Leviticus stage. We think of the 40 years, it's one generation. We could think of it as a lifetime. Right? When we're young, we're simply taught rules. We obey those rules. We follow them. But we begin to internalize them. And the book of Numbers might be that stage of now you've left your parents' house and you're going out into the world and you have to apply those rules you learned as a child. And you start learning, all right, I learned these simple rules, but the world is actually a lot more complicated than those simple rules. And then by the end of your life, you've now hopefully learned wisdom, and you're now teaching your kids that wisdom in a new and transformed way. And th yeah, th and this is the um, Scott Hahn's book, uh, The Father Who Keeps His Promises, is all about using the fatherhood as a, a, a lens by which to see God's dealings with Israel. God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Um, and out of Egypt, I've called my son. So this is the, and it, we also see this in, at the end of Deuteronomy with the, the very, very epic song of Moses. And this is an interesting liturgical tidbit because in both the Greek rite, in the Greek rite, as well as in the Roman rite, the entire song of Moses, um, what, what is it? Deuteronomy 32, I think. I think it's 32. Uh, but the entire mm -hmm. song of Moses is uh, rarely sung, except in penitential seasons in both both of the rites, East and West, um, because it's a very intense song of Moses. But it does say, is not he thy father? Is not God thy father, O Israel? Yeah. Um, so it's it's an interesting uh, aspect of this. So but um, yeah, yeah. let me let me bring up. I, I once again, I have two outlines yeah. Well, you're Bird. saying that oh, go ahead. I want to mention on that point about fatherhood. This also answers something to someone asked in the chat here about could we say one last thing about mosaic authorship of Deuteronomy? And I, I want to mention briefly, this will sort of be the basis of my argument here, is that uh, Deuteronomy, when they were first coming up with the documentary hypothesis, one of the basis, uh, basic sort of points that was used to date everything is that uh, King Josiah, one of the last kings of Judah, finds a sort of dusty scroll in the basement because King Manasseh had basically was an evil king and had gone out and basically tried to wipe out any last copies of the Bible he could find. And Josiah sort of finds you know, that one last dusty copy of the Bible that King Manasseh had not managed to wipe out. And this is the law, I just referred to as the book of the law. And so that was taken by um, these liberal scholars as referring to Deuteronomy. They said, ah, uh, Josiah actually made up the book of Deuteronomy in the seventh century and then we can date everything else based off this uh when deuteronomy was forged um but actually skull and one of his arguments for this is that he said deuteronomy looks very similar to contemporary assyrian uh treaties that we have between nations but the issue is now we have a lot, lot more treaties from the ancient world, and it, it has some similarities to an Assyrian treaty, but it actually looks a lot closer to Bronze Age treaties than it does to Iron Age treaties. So it actually looks a lot more like a document we would expect from the time of Moses than it looks like a document from the time of um, uh, from the time of Josiah. And something you'll notice with Deuteronomy is it's very, very familiar with the rest of what's in the Pentateuch. It's very familiar with the narratives and numbers, especially. And that's the first few chapters are just recalling all the major events and numbers. But what's, I think, really interesting is it remembers the opening chapters of Genesis, both at the beginning and end of Deuteronomy. 
because we open up here in verse chapter one, verse I'm trying to think of it. Yeah, verse 39, it has here. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. So what do the children here lack, right? They lack knowledge of good and evil, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did not have before eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they are just like right, Adam and Eve. Uh, we're going back now to the beginning. And if we look at the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses keeps emphasizing to them, before today, I have set before you life and death, choose life. So we have here the two trees, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life being recalled both at the beginning and end of Deuteronomy. So Moses probably had already written down the first four books of the Pentateuch. And now he's written down, probably sketched out Deuteronomy as his speech he's going to give to be the final concluding section of um, the rest of the Pentateuch. Yeah, and it mentions in, I believe it, it is actually mentioned in Exodus, but it's also mentioned in Deuteronomy when Moses wrote down the words of this law. And I think yeah. also of St. John, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 5, verse 45. And it's he, when Jesus is disputing with the Jews and he says, there is one that excuseth you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you did believe Moses, you would perhaps believe me also, for he wrote of me. Mm -hmm. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So obviously, yeah. our Lord Jesus is assuming that Moses wrote the Torah because he's saying he wrote it. So if you believe that Moses did not write the Torah, then you believe that Jesus did not understand the fact that he didn't write the Torah. Yeah. So then you have, then you're just contradicting the words of Christ himself. And now you're into a mess of problems by trying to believe that. So now there is a the the um, pontifical biblical um, what was it? What's the actual? I forgot the the wonder of Pius X did actually say that what you can allow the church does allow for certain editorial additions because obviously at the very end of Deuteronomy Moses dies and mm -hmm. then there's events that are are added and so. Obviously, we would we would hold that Moses wrote the Torah, but there were additional things added to the Torah after he wrote yeah. it um, that he couldn't have actually written. But, yeah, another um, good example of this is in Genesis either thirty-five or thirty-six. We get a list of Edomite kings all the way down to the time of King David, oh, and so clearly that was go. probably added somewhere around the time of King David. Right. Hey, here's an updated list of Edomite kings. We might as well stick it in when we're giving Esau's genealogy here. Well, and, and I think one of the biggest things Deuteronomy for me is that um, Deuteronomy prophesies the new Moses. He prophesied mm. the prophet. And to me, one of the most important salient features of a Catholic apologetic against both Protestants and rabbinic Jews and even Eastern Orthodox is the fact that Jesus is the new Moses. And that as we see a living magisterium in the Torah, we see Moses and his 70 elders who are adjudicating things of the law, because that is what is necessary. You have to have the writings of the Old Testament, the writings of the law, the writings of the covenant, but you also have to have a living magisterium. And this is what separates us as Catholics from every other body claiming this Old Testament, um, because Christ is the new Moses. And so like no other prophet, he is the new lawgiver. He gives the new law, the new priesthood, the new everything, and he is able to adjudicate things, these things as well as institute a new synagogue, if you will, a new Sanhedrin, a new living magisterium, as Moses did himself, so Christ himself does as well. 
And so that is the Catholic Church. That is the ecclesiastical authority that the Catholic Church alone claims to have that. And so that is coming right out of Deuteronomy when he prophesies the prophet who is like me, says Moses. And that separates uh, this reality from every other prophet and every other claim to be the true church. So that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. So here I have two different outlines, one from Chuck Swindoll and the other one from the Bible Project. Let's see. Here's the, so here's the Bible Project, the graphic representation. Um, and uh, so we have, as you said, so wonderfully, um, the beginning of Deuteronomy is, is the new generation and they do not have knowledge of good and evil. Um, they are they need to have this new law. Re- need to receive this before they go to repossess the promised land. So where do you want to go with uh, the discussion of the text, Gideon? Yeah, I um, the, I'll, I'll start off with one point about the opening chapter. The opening chapters, he's sort of going through and just reminding them of um, everything that we went through already in the book of Numbers. He's sort of giving them a background of, hey, here's why I'm giving you this new law. And one of the interesting points, and I think it's very important when we're talking with Protestants about religious imagery, they might say right, one of the Ten Commandments is not to make any graven image. And if we notice in uh, Deuteronomy 4.15, it gives us the reasoning that we shouldn't make any sort of image. He says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. So the reason we can't make images is because uh, we saw no form of God, but Christ is the image of the invisible God, as St. Paul says. And uh, in the Gospel of John, Christ says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So it really has to do with the incarnation. In the Old Covenant, we have a completely invisible God, so we cannot make any images of God. Uh, versus in the New Covenant, we have a God who has taken on form. And so there's a form that we can depict. And from there, I think what I found is really the key to understanding Deuteronomy. Is if you flip through Deuteronomy, I'm looking at the um, English Standard Version Catholic Edition here. You know, they'll have some parts where they can have like a chapter where they can give a heading to it. But they'll often have many sections where they say these are just miscellaneous laws. We can't find any sort of reasoning for why the laws are in this order. But Moses actually at the beginning gives us the reasoning for the order of the rest of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he gives us the Ten Commandments again. So the Ten Commandments are actually the outline. If you look closely, you'll start noticing that we have large sections of multiple chapters that relate to each one of the Ten Commandments. And so Moses is in some sense giving us the moral law first, the Ten Commandments, and then he's giving us a commentary on the Ten Commandments. And so that's what we could go through. And a brief note also on the order of the Ten Commandments, because if you've ever talked with if you're a Latin Catholic and you've ever talked with a Protestant who's not a Lutheran, you'll start being very confused because they'll have a different numbering for the Ten Commandments. Uh, so it's not that we're hiding one of the Ten Commandments, but that we simply count them differently. So uh, Latin Catholics and Lutherans as well will count uh, the first commandment not to have any other gods before me, and the second commandment 
of not to make any graven image. Uh, we traditionally count those as one commandment. And then uh, not to covet your neighbor's wife is counted as distinct as not to covet your neighbor's property. Uh, and you notice here in Deuteronomy, you can easily look at the text and count it that way versus uh, most Reformed Protestants and also uh, most Eastern Christians will count uh, to make no other God and to make no image as the first and second commandment and to count all types of covetousness as the same 10th commandment there. Uh, so just I'll follow the Latin Catholic ordering just because I assume that's what most listeners are familiar with. Uh, but just so people know of different ways of ordering the commandments. Yes. Yeah, um, good point. That's that's something that could come up. Uh, here's another outline as well, like I mentioned. Um, yeah. It divides it into looking back. Yeah. Chapters one through four. And then looking up, remember the blessing accompanying obedience, compromises for weakened distinctives, um, chapters five through 26. And then the final chapters, 27 to 34, is this blessing and the curse. What's interesting in the very end is that Moses actually prophesies the Babylonian exile. He, he yeah. well, not only that, he, he, he prophesies the king, uh, that the king will come, there will be a king, and then he will oppress you and all this stuff. And But then the book of Lamentations, when they're lamenting the destruction of Israel, they, they mentioned that this was according to the law of Moses, that this came yeah. about. And so there's all these, these are... The, divine mysteries as well here um but uh yeah that that's a very interesting point that you're making about an extended commentary on the ten commandments so what are yeah. some aspects of that that you you see uh gideon yeah so um i found the oldest person i can find who mentioned this and i'm sure it's a lot older but the oldest one i could find through my internet searches is kenneth gentry mentioning it and i I don't entirely agree with the breakdown he gives, but I'll mostly follow his. On the last few commandments, I think he draws the boundary a little off, uh, but I'll follow it. So he marks out um, Deuteronomy 6 through 11 as about the first commandment, right? Because we have an emphasis here, and even starts off here. Now, this is the greatest commandment, um, statutes and rules the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them and possess them in the land so he goes on and it, here's the greatest commandment he has hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and these words I command you today to be shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign upon your hands and they shall be frontlets between your eyes and you will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so we have here the most important commandment on uh, this christ repeats this in the new testament is to know there is one god and to love him with all your heart mind and soul um and actually jews will recite this prayer three times a day and they will even follow it literally so as it mentions you will bind them as signs on your hands and as frontlets between your eyes if you ever see an Orthodox Jew praying, they will have um, sort of these straps wrapped around their arms, and they will actually put a box on their head. And in that box contains this section of Deuteronomy. It says to bind these words, and they take that literally to mean these words in this chapter of Deuteronomy, and to bind them upon your head. And if you ever walk into a Jewish house, you'll notice right on the the doorway, they will have a little thing called a mezuzah that actually contains within it again this section of Deuteronomy that says to bind them as on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Oh, so this would have been a practice that our Lord would have kept as well, um, most is, likely at least. And, and I, I think of as well 
um, in this section you just mentioned, um, the um, chapter 8, verse 5, that thou mayest consider in thy heart that as a man traineth up his son, so the Lord thy God hath trained thee up. Again, going mm -hmm. back to that father-son relationship. And that, that, yeah. that's really, it's already brought out in Genesis because it says that God, or that Adam brought forth a son in his own image. He begot him when he begets uh, Seth. And so the the idea, the, the basic, it, that's Genesis chapter five. So the basic idea that we are in God's image is that we are sons of God, that God has begotten us. Um, so that, but that's very interesting. So six to eleven is the first it's, commandment. Yeah, and then twelve would also be what we count as the first commandment as well. Okay. Um, this twelve though goes into the second part of it, right? Because the second part, it just mentions don't worship with images there, and that's because in the Old Testament that was the proper way to worship God. Right? This is something we've stressed again and again in this series is that it's not enough to not worship false gods. It's important to worship the true God in the way he has commanded. Because if we look at um, chapter 12, it mentions uh, the Lord's chosen place of worship. This is also another good proof that this is an older document because the Samaritans argue that the place God chose for worship to happen was Mount Gerizim. And this was actually something they were doing already in the time of Josiah, long before Josiah. So if this was a forgery in the time of Josiah, why didn't he put, why didn't uh, Josiah put in here, and that place will be called Jerusalem or something like that? The author of this, Moses, seems to have no awareness that it will be the city of Jerusalem. He's just been told by God that some place is going to be chosen. And we have here that you have to not only worship um the true God, you have to worship him in the way he commands, which is at the temple in Jerusalem then, and now in the new covenant at a rite approved by the Catholic church. There we go. Um, all right. Then we have um, the second commandment, which is uh, to not take the na uh, name of the Lord in vain. And if we look at, um, here we go. Yeah, Deuteronomy 13, we'll see here we have the laws against false prophets. So false prophets taking uh, the name of the Lord in vain in a different direction than um, God. God didn't actually give them these prophecies since they're leading people astray using the name of God. And then right after that, we um, go into the section about... Um, which command the uh, third commandment, which is to keep the Sabbath. And it goes out here. You notice it will have clean and unclean foods, tithes. Then we go into chapter 15. We have the uh, rules about the Jubilee and the sabbatical year. Uh, chapter 16, we have Passover and the other feasts. And we go on uh, to more and more feasts there through chapter um, 16. And so it's right, we have in the Ten Commandments a rule to worship God once a week, once every seven days. But here it's going out and it's saying it's not enough simply to worship God once every seven days, but we also have to give tithes. We have to let our land rest once every seven years. We have to keep all the other feasts. So it's building out a larger sabbatical theology. It's not simply once a week we do something, but there's a whole theology behind the Sabbath that's being taught here about a whole way of ordering a society. And and it's to me, it's, it's significant that that the prophecy of the new prophet comes at the end of this commentary of the first three commandments, 
chapter 18, verse 18, I will raise up a mm -hmm. prophet out of the midst of the brethren because the first three commandments are all about God. It's only until the fourth commandment when we start start talking about um, your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. The fourth commandment is a sort of transitionary commandment because it's a neighbor, but the neighbor is your father and mother who represents, who sort of represent God to you. They're the authority set over you. So we have a neighbor, but it's not just any random neighbor. It's a neighbor who has authority over you. So we transition. We first have God as an authority. Then we transition to human authorities before we get to other humans that you relate to. And this is naturally how your family works as well. You first grow up and you have parents who have authority over you. And it's not until you get older that you start interacting with other people in your society around you. Right? If, you're, if you notice this with a baby, babies don't interact very much with anyone except adults. And as they get older, they begin slowly interacting more and more with other people who are their equals rather than their superiors. Um, we go into, now we start uh, with chapter 17, you'll notice we all of a sudden we have decisions by priests and judges. Um, then we have an 18, we have more rules for priests. We have the prophet like Moses. Uh, chapter 19, we get rules about cities of refuge. 20, we get laws about warfare. And as we go on and on, we start noticing all of these have to do with authority set over you. So, right, the church says that the commandment to honor father and mother also includes honoring the authority of the church over you and includes honoring the authority of the government over you. And that's not something the church made up. The church didn't just say, all right, we're taking honor father and mother, and this is about honoring people above you. So we're just going to throw everything in here in our catechism. But actually, this goes all the way back to Moses, who takes the rule about honoring father and mother and expands it out in general to honoring all sorts of human authorities. I think so it's when, in this sec. Yeah. When does the fifth commandment begin? Yeah, so I, I have to go on then in uh, 21 when we start getting rules about murder. Uh, but okay. before I do that, I wanted to briefly touch on, uh, in chapter 17, the rules about kings. Because I think the it's really interesting here that we get a discussion of kings. Because you know traditional Catholics will often look back on the days of monarchy and say, there was a lot of good things. Whether or not someone thinks we should have the same exact sort of government today. We often look back to that as a good period in history. And Catholic liberals will often jump to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where God says it is a sin for Israel to have asked for a king. And they'll say, see, it's a sin for Israel to ask for a king. Therefore, it's always a sin to ask for a king. And somehow they get from that to, therefore, we should have a liberal democracy, even though that's not what Israel was getting rid of. Um, but we have to, we can't just take one passage in the Bible that talks about kings and say that's all the Bible has to say about kings. Because in um, Deuteronomy chapter 17, we get, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving to you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around about me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So Deuteronomy says, when you want to set a king over yourself, you can set a king over yourself. So Israel's sin was not wanting a king over them. It was the way in which they wanted a king over themselves. We have to keep reading on here. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 
only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So he, why specifically horses? Well, horses are a very offensive army unit. You, go, you use it to go run over somewhere else and conquer somewhere else. The sort of king that Israel is supposed to have is not a conquering king, but that they should come in, possess the land, dwell in the land, have already conquered the whole land, and then set a king over themselves. A king is something eschatological. Once they've conquered the nations, they set a king over themselves. But they want a king immediately. And they want to put a king, and then they want that king to go conquer all the nations for them. We see this in church history, that um, the church first has to go out and bring the gospel to all the nations before Christ is going to come and rule as the king on the earth. Uh, initially, right, he's ruling from heaven and on earth through the Catholic church, but primarily his throne is in heaven. Well, and then, that, oh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, because um, it's also interesting. It notices here, right, he's not supposed to go to Egypt to get horses and he's also not supposed to have many wives and get lots of silver and gold. And Solomon, right, the king who causes the downfall of Israel, he was a very wise king in his youth. And we see at the very end of his life, he comes back, but it's sort of too late at that point. And the, his first sort of thing that causes everything else to go down a hill is he makes an alliance with the Egyptians and he goes and gets an Egyptian wife, which is exactly, God said, you can make an alliance with any other nation, but not with the Egyptians, because that's going to cause your downfall. And that's exactly what we see. And Solomon should have known this. Because it says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So he's supposed to, the king is supposed to make a copy of all the entire book of Deuteronomy so that he knows the law. Right? And perhaps we should have this requirement for our own kingdoms, right? Perhaps when someone is elected as president of the U.S., the first thing they should have to do is by hand copy the whole book of Deuteronomy so that we know they know it. There we go. That's exactly what we need. Yeah, it's it reminds me of yeah, he should not have multiple wives. With David also is 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 uh cut to the heart with that too, um, which will allure his mind, which is exactly what says it says about Solomon. He married foreign wives who lured him to other gods. Mm -hmm. But then I also thought of one of the most powerful but subtle warnings from scripture is um first kings aka third kings chapter 10 verse 14 which says the weight of the gold that was brought to solomon every year was 666 talents of gold so we have this 666 in the old testament which is obviously the number of the beast in apocalypse representing emperor nero but it, it in in deuteronomy it says that he should not uh, get an immense sum of silver and gold and this is the uh, corrupting influence of money, which the New Testament says is idolatry itself. It's this subtle form of idolatry, which is not, which is present in the second temple, where the the more crass and obvious form of idolatry has been done away with in a second temple. There is still this more subtle form of idolatry, which was the downfall of Solomon. Um, and it's just remarkable that, as you say, Deuteronomy says this, and the king should have copied it all out and should have known that, should have known better. Yeah. Yeah, so um, going on, then I actually realized that I drew the division slightly wrong in terms of the commentary here, but it's really 17 and 18 that focuses on authority. 
Because then we get to chapter 19, and we have Cities of Refuge, which actually deals with rules about murder. Because um, the Bible actually makes a distinction between manslaughter and murder. Because if you accidentally kill someone, let's say you get in a fight and you weren't intending to kill them, or you're, let's say, at a work site and there's an accident and someone is killed, um, the person you killed's brother, he now has to come and avenge his brother's blood. And the two of you uh, run along the road, basically, until you reach a city of refuge. And then when you get to the city of refuge, so he's not allowed to kill you beforehand, but he has to chase you. So you go, guys, run to the city of refuge. You then stop there, and at the city of refuge, the priests come out, or the Levites, the extended family of the priests. They come out, and they judge the case. And if you're ruled only guilty of manslaughter, not of murder, you now go in and you dwell in the city of refuge. So you wait. You have to wait in the city of refuge so that uh, he can't kill you. Uh, and if you're guilty of murder, then, then you're put to death for murder. So that's tr- tried there. And this is very, very different from ancient societies. So a good example of this, as actually reading last night from Peter Lightheart, he has a great book called uh, Heroes of the City of Man, where he analyzes ancient Greek literature and compares it to the Bible. I was reading yesterday his commentary on the Eumenides of um, Aeschylus. So in the Eumenides, um, Clytemnestra had killed Agamemnon for killing their daughter. Then um, Electra uh, their uh, Clytemnestra's daughter kills Clytemnestra for killing her father. Then Orestes, now his, uh, Electra's brother, now has to kill Electra for killing their mother. And so now the Furies are pursuing, and that's in the first two plays. So now in the third play, the Eumenides, the Furies are now chasing Orestes to kill him for killing his sister. And so now Orestes has to flee to Athens. And then at Athens, eventually they put on a big trial, and it's basically a propaganda piece about how great Athenian democracy is. Uh, but it's drawing on this ancient Greek myth, uh, which long predates Aeschylus, of um, these idea of blood feuds, because these are a big thing in the ancient world. And the Bible has a really, I mean, we grew up in a society that has the concept of rule of law, and that you can't just be, go out with vigilante justice and kill someone. But that's not how it worked in the ancient world. If someone wronged your family, you went out and you killed them, then you killed them, so now their family has to kill you back, and these blood feuds would go on until everyone was dead. And so um, the city of refuge would set up a place where you had to run. There was still the avenging of blood, but now there would be a place where there would be a fair trial and things would actually be properly worked out. Um, And you're also, you're stuck in the city of refuge either until a jubilee year when you're freed or the death of the high priest, which symbolizes the um, death of Christ, thereby freeing everyone from the city of refuge. So you still, if you're guilty of manslaughter, you still get to live your life, but you are segregated off from society. Uh, so there is some punishment for it. And then go on, we have laws concerning warfare. So we have an idea of um, war, which right involves killing. We have rules about um, murder. And one of these last rules about murder is about the rebellious son. And um, the sort of murdering of your parents through disobeying your parents. And I think this is a really interesting passage because of the punishment given here. So I'll read through it. So we have, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, the voice of his mother, and uh, though they discipline him, uh, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders at the gate of the place that he lives. And they will say to the elders of his city, this are... 
son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, and you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, right, the Sanhedrin that wants to put Christ to death probably reads this, and they think that Christ is the rebellious son, the false prophet who is not obeying the authority of Israel. And so they go and they kill him and they hang him upon a tree so that he will be a curse. But it's actually Israel who has been the rebellious son to God. And they are the ones who are going to be destroyed by God in 70 AD for putting to death their God. So it's interesting. There's this reversal going on in the Gospels of this law where Israel thinks they're following the law. They're putting to death the rebellious son. But it's actually Israel who is the rebellious son who's going to be put to death. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I never saw that that connection um, and the death of the high priest being the, being the um, type of Christ as well. Yeah. Yeah. We then have um, the first law here we have in um, Deuteronomy is again, connecting it to um, this rule of murder. Um, So this one, now we're going on. So we have that one's connected to murder, but then we go on after that. And starting at 22, verse 5, we have a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For uh, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So we have here, we go in, we get lots of laws regarding sexual immorality. Right? We see this law being extremely broken today with the whole uh, gender ideology movement, that there wants to be an abolition of gender, because this distinction of gender not only being biological but also having a social function is the foundation of the proper sexual morality with everything else. And so this all relates to uh, the sixth commandment, not to commit adultery. And all of this here, as we go on through chap all of chapter 22, and... Um, Yeah, right. we also have not to commit incest. We have rules about uh, punishing rape as well. And so all these rules relate to sexual immorality. So again, when the church will put in rules about sexual morality in the catechism, in the section about adultery, it's not putting in rules because there just happens to be one of the Ten Commandments that deals with adultery. But Moses already expanded out the rules for adultery to include all of sexual immorality. We then get a few chapters, um, you know, we, we still get a few more, but now we get um, rules concerning divorce. So again, about adultery. And um, I'm just going on here and trying to map out where everything is in the head. Where did I have here? Um, so chapter chapter 24 is the divorce. Yeah, I guess chapter it's interesting that we have chapter 24 concerning divorce, but it actually a notice comes up that I just saw the heading there and that maybe jumped to that must be the end of the adultery section. It's actually not because before we get that starting in um chapter 23 verse 15, we start getting rules on uh money and theft. So actually the divorce section is going to come up within the theft section, which is quite interesting. 
Mm. And we have rules concerning property here. It includes also rules that you um, shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, uh, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything uh, that is lent uh, for interest. And so the church has historically taken this to be that you should not charge interest on loans. This is the sin of usury. Uh, Moses conceded and allowed it to be given to foreigners because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, but if we read the traditional view of the church has always been that now in the new covenant, that prohibition is taken away. That rule, rather. Um, the laxity of the rule is taken away and the prohibition is now actually strengthened in the new covenant. That we should not charge the sin of usury to anyone. And this is just another example of taking away that secondary legislation, which are these concessions to a relaxed morality. So it's sort of like on the face of it. And this is the patristic critique of the rabbinic Jews is that there there is a certain fleshly or carnal viewing of the law in, in sort of this hyper literal sense and forgetting the reasons or the it's like a legalism, like applying the law in a way that re, uh, contradicts spirit. And so by restoring the this um, priesthood of Melchizedek of the patriarchal period, there's also res restoration to the more strict and original form of the, the covenant law, including from usury to divorce. Um, also, yeah. but also restoring that that sort of firstborn priesthood in the priesthood of Melchizedek, because it's not the Aaronic priesthood of blood, but it's the priesthood uh, that can be. We, I mean, in the Christian law, we have the priest of all believers as well as the 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 priesthood of, of Jesus Christ for the firstborn son, as it were, in terms of uh, the male who is ordained. Yeah. And we notice here also that um, this rule about usury is pretty much right next to only a few verses away from the rules of divorce. So we have here um, these rules on how you treat property and marriage are... Um, loosened a little bit within the old covenant right also um there are rules about slavery as well which then begins to be phased out and if you notice people complain all right the bible was um unjust to have rules about slavery but it was something that existed in their society so god rather than moses tries to get rid of slavery entirely and what you end up with is probably just lots of violence um and they're going to put in rules that are going to be much stricter about how you treat your slaves. They're not simply property, but they are other humans uh, compared to how slaves were treated in the rest of the pagan world. Um, so coming go on, into, we, oh, go ahead. Yeah, this would also um, go. Yeah. So the rest of this section on um, property goes all the way through the end of chapter 24 here. Um, and it's quite interesting. We also have rules about you have to pay your workers, right? Because historically, the church has said if you uh, don't pay workers, if you don't clothe the naked, these are not rules about you didn't do something of charity, but you are actually violating justice and you are stealing from them by not providing them what you need if you have extra. And there's something you notice comes up again and again in Deuteronomy is this idea of justice, right? Um, Recently, Jordan Peterson uh, tried to criticize the Pope for talking about social justice. Because a lot of people hear the word social justice and they immediately think or that's something leftist. But actually, this is a biblical concept that has been perverted by the left in recent years. Uh, but we've never been this idea that you should just go off and there's only individual justice. 
we have we need a just society, which involves having a proper social justice. Yeah, um, there, I mean, there's ju vertical justice with God and there's justice with man, which would be social. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, every justice has sort of a social component. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and there's also, if you notice at the very end of the rules about, um, what was it, uh, not stealing, we have rules of, um, you shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner to the fatherless or to take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt uh, and the Lord your God redeemed you there and I commanded you to do this. So we can uh, shouldn't take away from the poor as a pledge what they can't get what they can't give away shouldn't take away their garments. And then after that, uh, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall, When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I commanded you to do this. And so we're to, when they, when they would go and harvest their fields, they had to leave aside part of it for the poor who couldn't provide for themselves to come take. So we need to make sure we're giving a part of what we earn for the poor to have. This is the uh, corporal works of mercy. So, and uh, in closing, we're, we're all out of time here. I wanted to bring up the graphic representation here for the final section, um, yeah. which is chapters 27 to 33. Uh, so first there is this, the warning and ultimatum, listen and obey, you get blessing, rebellion, you get devastation and exile. And then there's another prophesied, prophecy that God will circumcise your hearts. And then at the very end, we have... Um, 31 to 34, the Song of Moses, Warning, and the Poem of Blessing, chapter 33, and the, oh, finally the Death of Moses. So, final comments on Deuteronomy, Gideon. Yeah. Um, and people, it can often be easy to get lost in the laws as you're trying to read it. There's so many laws there. So try to look for, initially, just to sort of read over them, and you're saying, just getting an overview of what all the laws in the book are. And then you might remember those laws either, and perhaps you're encountering something in your life. Remember, all right, there was a law in the Bible of how the Israelites had to live in the Old Testament that I think has something to do with this. And you read over it and try and think about the logic behind the law that was there. And then see if you can apply that same principle to the problem you're facing in your own life. This is an example. Uh, there's quite a lot of discussion nowadays about how should we have a Christian education. And there's quite a lot early on about teaching the laws to your kids and the importance of educating uh, your kids in the law. And so I think if we're discussing education, that's a very important uh, area to turn back to and think about. Yes, excellent. This this out. It looks like um, Timothy Flanders uh, dropped out there. His internet must have cut out. Um, okay. Here we go. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, so that the outline says that the what you need to do is the law is you compare the laws of Deuteronomy with the laws of other neighbors, not modern mm -hmm. laws, because modern yeah. laws are, are a result of the gospel first permeating society for hundreds of years and then various liberal principles permeating society for hundreds of years. 
um, as you said, we compare Deuteronomy to these other law codes, and we do see that God is, as a father, raising up this rebellious son, weaning him from all of his rebellious ways, whether that's everything from slavery to divorce to uh, vicious warfare. And then you discern the core principle underlying the law. Yeah. And we see, then we see a continuity with the morals, the faith and morals of the Catholic Church, which is in direct continuity to all of these laws. So, yeah, I was going to yes. briefly mention on that point. Um, was it? It's not written. That's something people get confused. It's not written like a modern law code because it really took to the Romans to develop something like a modern law code where everything's extremely well organized. Uh, these law codes are given, this is common in ancient law codes, is you give lots of examples of something because it's meant to teach you moral lessons, not simply a law. Because if it was just a law code, like something like canon law or the U.S. government law code, it would be useful to Israel, but wouldn't be useful to teach us any moral lessons today. Uh, the law of the old covenant is meant to teach us moral lessons by giving us examples. Excellent. Yeah, I, and I think that the... Um one of the most powerful things about the scripture is the stories and how we gain virtues in a different way when we see the virtues and vices played out in real life or in a story we see how they affect people like we just talked about with solomon um mm -hmm. so reviewing these stories are it's what teaches us and teaches our children virtue so deuteronomy everybody the the final book of moses fantastic well getting it has been a great pleasure. I will see you or virtually see you on Saturday at the conference. So viewers and listeners, hope hope you can join us for the um, Creation Theology Ecology Conference with the St. Basil Institute on Saturday. Uh, the link below, you can join. You can use the coupon code MOC for a discount. It's only $25 full price, and then you get 10% off with a discount. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be uh, fantastic. So let us offer all of this to Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, as always, and uh, ask Our Lady to give us the wisdom contained in the books of Moses so that we can truly meditate on the law and hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against Almighty God. Let's pray. More honorable than the cherubim and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, thou who without stain bearest God the word, Jar truly Theotokos, we magnify thee. Christ is risen. He is risen. Holy, he is risen. 